2: From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Weiner. Today we'll talk about the crimes committed by Russians seeking to sow discord in the U.S. political system and make Trump president. Our Bob Dreyfus will report on the indictments issued Friday by Special Counsel Robert Mueller and on what might come next. Also, we'll try to explain why workers' wages have been stagnating for decades, since the early 70s. Some say it's the fault of the workers who aren't getting the education they need to make more money. Bryce Covert has a different view. We'll speak with her later in the show. But first, what does Jeff Bezos want? Amazon seems to be taking over the world. It's a radically new kind of monopoly. For that story, we turn to Stacy Mitchell. She's co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and author of the book, Big Box Swindle. She's written for the Atlantic, Bloomberg Businessweek and the Wall Street Journal. And she wrote the cover story for the nation's special issue on monopoly power in America. We reached her today in Portland, Maine. Stacy Mitchell, welcome.
0: It's great to be here. Isn't
2: Jeff Bezos doing with Amazon what every retailer tries to do? Undercut the competition with lower prices to get their customers. Amazon grows because they are really good at selling stuff, at being retailers. Isn't that true?
0: Well, one thing I would say is that Amazon isn't really a retailer, that its ambitions are much deeper than that, and we should, we should talk about that. But the other thing, you know, specifically in response to your question, is that Amazon has grown not just by being better at what it does, but often by using very anti-competitive tactics, by being able to use, for example, its deep pockets to sell goods at a loss. Um, So, for example, when Zappos, the shoe, online shoe retailer, started up and was growing in popularity and offering a service that people really liked, Amazon responded by selling shoes at a loss. Um, It lost tons and tons of money. Some estimates put it as high as $150 million selling shoes at a loss. And, of course, Zappos, being a smaller company, just didn't have the deep pockets to match Amazon's prices and sustain those kinds of losses. And Eventually, it had to give up. It was bleeding red, and it said, okay, Amazon, you can buy us. And now Zappos is part of Amazon. And so we've consistently over the years seen Amazon use different kinds of predatory tactics to block competition um, and to squash other companies. So it's not just a matter of competing on a fair playing field. It's really a, a set of monopoly tactics, and that's what we should be concerned about.
2: You report in The Nation how Amazon strong-armed Birkenstock into selling its special sandals at Amazon. What were Amazon's tactics?
0: You know, Amazon is not only uh, the platform that Birkenstock uh, uh, relies on to retail some of its shoes, Amazon buys Birkenstocks directly, but Amazon also hosts all of these other sellers on its platform who are selling Birkenstocks. And there has been this rising problem of counterfeits, tons of counterfeit Birkenstocks, lots of other kinds of counterfeit products on Amazon's platform from these third-party sellers, many based overseas. And Amazon has been wanting Birkenstock for a long time to sell its full line, not just its its major products, but also all its niche shoes directly to Amazon, because Amazon wants to compete with specialty local shoe retailers that specialize in Birkenstock and sell that full line. Um, And the way that Birkenstock, you know, Birkenstock benefits a lot from those local retailers. They help people fit their shoes. They provide all of these additional services that really benefits Birkenstock. So Birkenstock rewards them by saying, "Okay, we'll give you all of these niche products that aren't available elsewhere. Well, Amazon doesn't like that deal because they want to go after that market, too. And so what they said to Birkenstock is, you know, we're not going to police all these counterfeits on our site. We're not going to get rid of the counterfeit Birkenstocks unless you agree to sell to us your full line. Wow. the only reason we know that happened is that Birkenstock fought back and they actually went public and said, we're not going to do this. And we have a brand relationship with our customers and we're going to stand up. But we have reason to believe that Amazon is doing that with other manufacturers, including Nike, uh, to the detriment both you know, of those companies, but also the competing specialty stores as well.
2: Let's talk about Amazon Marketplace. This is the deal where store independent stores that don't want to compete with Amazon become part of Amazon. Their products are advertised to the millions of people like me who start their shopping at Amazon. Aren't these stores doing all right? They're getting to sell their products to many more people.
0: Yeah, you know, it used to be that when people went to buy something online, they would start at a search engine, you know, so they would maybe go to Google, and they would type in the kind of product that they wanted, they would get a bunch of different results, including Amazon, they might go and buy it on Amazon, they might go to one of the other companies offering it and buy it there. Over time, what has happened is that now more than half of all online shoppers are actually starting their product search right on Amazon. And what that has meant for competing retailers, independent stores, competing chains, manufacturers, um, is that if those companies want to reach consumers, uh, no matter how good their website is, no matter how sophisticated their e-commerce strategy is, Half the shopping traffic is already bypassing them. They, they can never find them because they're not even starting on a search engine. They're just starting at Amazon. And what this has meant is that a lot of of retailers that would like to be doing business on their own directly have been compelled to join Amazon's platform to become third-party sellers on Amazon's site and this is a really treacherous place to be I mean on the one hand you get back access to that half of the market that's starting right on Amazon but on the other hand you're living and dying by Amazon's terms and we know for from a study that was done by uh, Harvard Business School that Amazon actually monitors what those, those third-party sellers are selling. And if they have a hot product, Amazon brings it into its own inventory and then begins selling it itself and competing directly against them. Amazon often changes fees. And so the fees for using its fulfillment services have been rising dramatically. And of course, the third-party sellers have no other place to turn. And so there's this power dynamic. And this is Really, what, uh, you know, as a centerpiece of what the article is all about is that Amazon isn't a retailer. That's not the right way to think about it. Amazon wants to control the underlying infrastructure of commerce. And so that all these other companies that want to reach consumers online now have to use Amazon's platform. And soon, if they want to ship things and have them arrive at the consumer's door, they're probably also going to be using Amazon's shipping services. And, of course, many companies also use its cloud computing services, you know, Netflix, Con and asked all these big companies actually re- rely on amazon to manage their data so in effect all these other companies in the economy they need to ride amazon's rails if they want to get to market they are dependent on the company that is their most ferocious competitor and therein lies the conflict of interest that is at the heart of the anti-competitive problem that amazon presents amazon uses that privileged position uh, not only to uh, grab the part of the market that it wants and to shut other companies aside, but essentially to levy a kind of tax across the economy, uh, across all this commerce that's going on and it's on its rails.
2: Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul. Minnesota entered the competition over the last few months to find a site for Amazon's second headquarters uh, Minnesota offered $5 million in government subsidies uh, if Amazon would build its second headquarters somewhere around the Twin Cities. But that got rejected. What are the biggest offers of taxpayer subsidies that Amazon got for a new headquarters? How much bigger than $5 million are they?
0: Boy, it is amazing. It's just astonishing the figures that uh, elected officials are putting on the table. So in Maryland, they've offered five. Billion dollars, as well as close proximity to Congress, right? Uh, Very advantageous for a company like Amazon right now, as people are starting to scrutinize its power. And then in New Jersey, um, you know, the New Jersey uh, former Governor Chris Christie and Senator Cory Booker uh, and the Mayor of New Newark put together a package worth seven billion dollars. That's more than Amazon's headquarters is supposed to cost. I mean, it's just an astonishing figure. And of course, you've got uh, local businesses in in those communities that have been growing and creating jobs and trying to compete without a dime in public assistance. And now they're watching as their elected officials grovel and woo and hand out public dollars to get one of their biggest competitors to come to town.
2: Well, we've been circling around the question of antitrust enforcement. What would breaking up Amazon look like?
0: So with Amazon, I think the essential thing is that we need to separate. We need to get rid of the conflict of interest that's at the heart of its business model. So we need to separate Amazon as a platform that other companies use in order to sell goods online and to reach uh, shoppers. We need to separate that from Amazon as a retailer and a manufacturer of goods itself um, so that the company is no longer able to use what it learns from the companies that rely on it to reach the market in order to compete against them and undermine their their business. And in some ways, this is, um, you know, sort of harkens back to the kinds of problems that we faced uh, you know, about a century ago with the railroads you know, we had, when the railroads first came along, they were owned by these industrialists who also owned uh, factories and other kinds of uh, companies. And they used their control of the rails to uh, privilege their own goods and shut aside goods made by their competitors. And so th- that's what really gave rise to our antitrust laws in the first place. And we said to the railroads, you're a common carrier, you have to treat all comers equally and be a sort of fair medium for people to get to the market. And that's really 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 what
2: we need to do with Amazon. The Trump administration is obviously not going to engage in antitrust enforcement against Amazon or probably anybody else, but could cities or states go after monopolies like Amazon? You're part of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, so this is your thing. Could uh, state or local action work in the case of Amazon?
0: There are certainly things that cities can do uh, in in response to Amazon. There are uh, strategies that we're promoting that, you know, help communities uh, strengthen local businesses and, you know, in doing so really insulate their local economies from the worst effects of Amazon. There are other things too. Cities can certainly look at, for example, their own purchasing, you know, their public procurement. Are they buying goods and services from Amazon or are they buying those goods and services locally? I also think that state uh, attorneys general uh, can play an important role here. We've actually seen the Missouri Attorney General uh, open an investigation into Google for anti-competitive, potential anti-competitive violations. And some of our most important, you know, antitrust cases in the past, including, you know, the Standard Oil when they were broken up, the Microsoft case in the 90s, those actually really got started with state attorneys general who were doing investigations and then eventually got picked up at the federal level. And so um, I'm hoping that some, uh, some state AGs will begin to be looking at Amazon more closely.
2: Stacy Mitchell, she wrote about Amazon for the cover story of The Nation's special issue on monopoly power in America. It's a terrific piece. You can read it at TheNation.com. Thank you, Stacy. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about wages in America. They've been stagnant for decades, since the early 70s. Why is that? For some answers, we turn to Bryce Covert. She writes about the economy for the nation in the New York Times op-ed page, She's also written for The Washington Post, New York Magazine, The New Republic, and others. She's appeared on ABC, CBS, NPR, and Morning Joe on MSNBC. The National Women's Political Caucus in 2016 gave her their award for Exceptional Merit in Media. Bryce Covert, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
2: Well, in your piece for the nation's special issue on monopoly power in America, you talk about something called non-poaching agreements at places like McDonald's. We're not talking here about poaching eggs.
1: (laughs) No, we are talking about the kind of poaching where you're trying to take something, perhaps in a kind of shady way. These agreements in theory are meant to protect company secrets or, you know, intellectual property. So, for example, if there is an engineer working on things at Microsoft that are sensitive, he is asked to sign a non-compete, non-poaching agreement so that he can't just take that knowledge and get poached by Apple and then spill all the beans and Apple makes lots of money off of what Microsoft already developed. However, these agreements have now really blossomed and proliferated throughout the entire economy and are showing up in places where it just doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. One particular area that's been studied is franchises throughout the country. So, you know, a McDonald's, for example, McDonald's often doesn't run its own restaurants. It has franchisees who run their own particular stores under the McDonald's umbrella. McDonald's, however, forces them all to sign these non-compete agreements, which says that they can't try to hire employees from a different franchisee of McDonald's. And what that what that has meant in practice for some people, I, in my article, I talk about one particular woman who's suing the company. Is that you know she was frustrated with the job she had at McDonald's, at the particular franchise. They weren't really letting her advance. She felt like she wasn't getting the raises she deserved. But her experience was really you know applicable to the company she'd learn a lot about working at McDonald's so she tried to get hired by a different franchise that would pay her more but that non-compete agreement meant that legally that other franchisee wasn't allowed to hire her and she was stuck where she was it's hard to see what kind of company secrets or intellectual property might be protected by that and instead what it seems like these agreements are likely doing particularly for low-wage workers like her or people at you know, Burger King or Baskin Robbins is it's trying to hold them in place so that they can't do something like that where they get a job getting paid more. It serves to hold down their wages because they have a lot less negotiating power against their bosses if they can't just threaten to leave or actually leave for a higher paying job.
2: The case uh, that you wrote about and that you've referred to is about an employee at one McDonald's store being unable, because she signed a non-compete, non-poaching agreement, to work at a different McDonald's. But could she go to Burger King or, or could Burger King... I don't know, get the secret of the Big Mac by poaching on a McDonald's crew member.
1: There are also a bunch of non-compete agreements that are, again, spreading throughout the economy um, where people can't move even to another company, Um, and these are also becoming more common. Again, they're showing up for low-wage workers. So, you know, someone who works at, for example, Jimmy John's, which is a sandwich place that's sort of come under scrutiny for this practice, they were required, as part of you know signing up for their job, to sign this non-compete agreement. That they many workers found out sort of after the fact, often that that barred them from working at any other sandwich shop for a, peti- a period of time. Um, it's again, it's hard to see what secret sauce Jimmy John's <laughs> might be protecting that would warrant something like this. And if it really is more about limiting workers' mobility so that you don't have to compete on wages and things like that, then that's potentially illegal under our antitrust laws. But it's all sort of, it's a kind of new frontier, I think, in both in um, employer contracts and also now in litigation like this woman who brought a lawsuit against McDonald's.
2: And this is the first time we've discussed Jimmy John's secret sauce on The Nation podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so why... Why do workers sign non-compete agreements that keep their wages down? Why don't they just say they won't do it?
1: Well, it's a very good question, and I think this gets to sort of the larger point of my article, which is that a lot of them don't have any other choice. Um, the studies that have looked at these have found that about two-thirds of job applicants who sign these non-compete agreements had no other job opportunities. So. You know, you can imagine putting yourself in those shoes, you need a job, you're about to get a job, and they say, great, we want to hire you, you just have to sign on the dotted line, and that dotted line includes promising to abide by this non-compete agreement. That gets to this larger issue of why workers have so little power vis-à-vis their employers. Um, and in my article, I talk about what's called monopsony power, which is a weird-sounding word that sounds like I'm butchering the word monopoly power. Um, it's related to monopolies, but it's a little bit different. Um, a monopoly has eaten up an entire consumer market. So if you want to go buy a chair, a monopoly has The power to be the only seller of chairs and you have to pay whatever it is that they charge for that chair you need because there's no other businesses competing and offering lower prices monopsony power is similar and usually a monopolized company can exert this kind of power it's basically the only employer that a particular worker can go to to get a job so if I'm a chair maker and I live in Ohio, there's only one chairmaker in Ohio where I can get a job. And what that ends up doing is giving this employer a ton of power over you. So for example, it could force you to sign a non compete ag- agreement and a bunch of other things that it could potentially do to hold down your wages It's it's really hard to ask for a raise it's really hard to leave for another job if there are no other jobs it's hard to threaten to leave for another job or quit in order to get a raise if really you are stuck with this one chairmaker in ohio Um, and what research is now starting to show is that we live in an economy where this is happening more and more frequently industries are concentrating and Economists are now finding that that concentration is indeed holding down wages. It's a part of the puzzle of why workers are not making more.
2: Well, we have antitrust laws. They're not being enforced very much right now, but if they were enforced, would they be able to address the problem that you have told us about?
1: Right now, basically, the way it works is if companies want to merge and become one conglomerate, really the only test they have to go through with federal regulators is whether or not they will raise prices for consumers. That doesn't get at the issue of whether that could eliminate a competing employer and give workers a lot fewer options, thereby limiting their wage growth or holding down their pay. So, we could take it into account. You know, regulators could start be making that part of the test to say, you know, you guys are going to have way too much power in this market. You might be able to promise us the same prices or lower prices, but you can't promise that jobs aren't going to be eliminated and wages aren't going to be held down and that it could be blocked on those grounds. But that really, I mean, that just is unheard of right now. It has been unheard of for decades, and it would take a real rethink and perhaps even rewrite of the rules that we currently live by.
2: That would require a big rethink, but something that a lot of us have been thinking about lately is a $15 minimum wage. Would that help the problem of low-wage workers being crippled by monopsony?
1: I think it would. I think basically anything we can do to help boost people's both their pay and their bargaining power helps reduce Monopsony power of among employers. So, you, if you raise the minimum wage, what you're doing is basically giving people the pay increase that they should be able to get on their own in a marketplace where they actually have equal power against their employers. If our economy is set up and it really looks like it is so that employers have more and more power against us to hold down our pay, what congressional lawmakers can do is say, well, okay, we're going to raise people's base pay. Um, so that's one way. Another way is to help them unionize because that helps gather their power vis a vis employers. Another idea that was floated to me when I wrote this article was to do something like either a jobs guarantee or a basic income, um, both of which basically give people some. Amount of income to fall back upon if they can't find a job. And that would help because then, even if there's only one chair making employer in Ohio, if you don't want to accept the low wages that they're offering, you could instead either go get a job through the federal jobs guarantee or you could rely on your basic income for a while and figure out a way to either you know, get a different job, get some education, move, you know, whatever it is, start your own business. Um, It would give people a little bit more um, freedom to say no to wages that they don't think are fair. So there are those kinds of things that sort of get at the issue without changing our regulatory regime.
2: Universal basic income sounds kind of utopian in the age of Trump. How how about just banning non-compete agreements for wage workers.
1: That is also an option, um, and it's one that's under consideration. Um, They're basically, these non-compete agreements are basically all but unenforceable in three states, California, Oklahoma, and North Dakota, which I think is an interesting group of states, not necessarily a bunch of deep blue places. But that is certainly something you can do pretty easily legislatively that at least would help free up mobility for some of these workers who are trapped by these agreements.
2: We're talking about why workers' pay has been stagnating for so many decades. I've heard that the reason is that workers are failing to get more education. It's the workers' own fault. That's that's what I've heard. What have you heard?
1: Yeah, I think there's a lot of this idea. I think particularly during the recession, there was this idea of what people were calling a skills mismatch, where employers wanted to hire, but they just couldn't find people who had the right skills or the right education. And Really, I think that story <laughs> I hope it 's been put to rest because you know even as the economy is doing so much better than it was then right now, um, a lot more people have jobs you know these companies. Are, have hired a lot of people. Our pay still has not gone up, and that doesn't really jive with that story. Because if employers are unable to find the right workers for the job, one thing they can do is increase the pay and attract the right people. Um, you know, if you're trying to hire someone uh, who's really skilled at ch- chair making and you're only offering eight dollars an hour and no one's biting, a great idea <laughs> is to offer a little bit more pay and see if someone who's really skilled says, you know what. I will take that chair-making chair job for $15 an hour. We're not seeing that happening. Um, so something is, is off here. Um, and I think the idea of monopsony power, that employers just have this inordinate amount of control over the labor landscape, is starting to be a much more widely accepted explanation for what might be going on here.
2: Bryce Covert. She wrote about some of the reasons for stagnant wages for the nation's special issue on monopoly power in America. You can read it at thenation.com, where she also has a terrific cover story on sexual harassment of women who work in restaurants and bars. Thank you, Bryce.
1: Thank you so much.
2: Maybe you heard the news. The Justice Department charged 13 Russians and three companies in a sprawling indictment on Friday that unveiled a sophisticated network designed to subvert the 2016 election and support the Trump campaign. But in this new indictment, the special prosecutor did not charge Trump or anybody in the White House or anybody in his campaign. For comment and analysis, we turn to our Russiagate reporter, Bob Dreyfus. Of course, he's a longtime contributing editor at The Nation and also a regular contributor to Rolling Stone. Of course, he's also written for Mother Jones, The New Republic, Slate, and Salon. Bob, welcome back. Thanks. Glad to be here. Well, first, tell us about the indictments.
3: Well, first of all, it came as a a surprise that Mueller did not uh, tip his panned on this. He didn't signal that this is what he was going to do. It just happened. That's been the case with all of his uh, indictments. I think what's interesting about this is um, other than you know things like charging uh, Trump officials of lying to the FBI or financial shenanigans or things like that, this indictment goes right to the heart of what I call the, the original sin of Russiagate, namely the direct involvement of Russian intelligence uh, of Russian actors in trying to affect shift the outcome of the election in 2016. So here he is charging 13 individual Russians with criminal activity, with using social media um, to um, pretend to be other people, to steal American identities to organize rallies and demonstrations and otherwise project, um, propaganda that they thought would, uh, undermine Hillary Clinton's, uh, election prospects that year. And at the same time, would boost Donald Trump's and, um, while he doesn't make any conclusion and, and I'm not sure I have one either about whether, this affected the outcome. That's kind of an unknowable question. He does make the clear case that they tried.
2: Now, all 13 people who were indicted were Russian, no Americans, nobody in the Trump family, nobody in the Trump White House, nobody in the Trump campaign. Is that a reason for Donald Trump to celebrate?
3: Well, no, not, not at all. I mean, first of all, there are going to be many more such bombshells, I would say, throughout the rest of this year, and some of them could strike a lot closer to the heart of whether or not Trump and his family and his advisors colluded with the Russians, and they could also strike at the issue of obstruction of justice, which is another whole set of issues that Mueller is looking at. But the reason he shouldn't take this as any kind of celebration is That for a year and a half now, since the summer of 2016, when we first learned that the intelligence community suspected the Russians as being behind this uh, hacking of the DNC and leaking to WikiLeaks and all of that, Trump has consistently, repeatedly, time after time, denied that the Russians did it. He said, I take you know, I met with Putin, and he tells me he didn't do it, and he really believes that. He he has uh, thrown uh, sand in the eyes of people who argue that the Russians are behind this, and he said it uh, could have been Russia, but it could have been China. It could have been some uh, fat guy on his bed. So, uh, I mean, he's been very reluctant um, to... Acknowledge the fact that the Russians are behind this, even though his own intelligence people, by the way, appointed by him, are saying that now quite publicly and aggressively.
2: Trump also has said that all the crimes laid out in this new indictment were committed while Obama was president. It was Obama who failed to protect the United States election from Russian interference. Isn't that actually true?
3: Well, um you know you can make the argument that Obama should have been more of a paul revere and and you know rang the alarm bell and um and so forth but I mean this was a very unusual and fast moving development, and I think there really isn't any doubt um that Obama made those statements before the election several times, and of course these intelligence people issued a a similar statement in October before the election, saying that the Russians were uh, engaged in this uh, activity to try to uh, affect the election. I, I think he could have done more, but I think also he was operating under the assumption that if he did anything too loud, um, that it would you know work against him, that people would say he's intervening on behalf of Secretary Clinton. And, and in fact, you know, all during that year, everybody from uh, Obama to Clinton to Trump, and I guess Vladimir Putin, too, all thought that Clinton was going to win probably in a landslide. So I, I guess they thought the effect of this Russian activity uh, gauged against everything else that was happening, you know, was not that significant. In the end, it turned out to be such an incredibly close election in terms of the states that tipped the electoral college, that any one of a dozen different factors, including the Russian activity, you could point to and say, you know, that's what made the difference.
2: One of the factors that I'd like to look at a little more closely for a minute is the lower black turnout in this election uh, compared to the previous one, we now know that the Russian uh, bots and trolls focused especially on the black voters, on trying to persuade blacks not to vote for Hillary. We know that there was a Instagram page, Woke Blacks, and there were accounts on Twitter and Facebook, the Blacktivist accounts, and all of those sites Uh, emphasized that black people should not vote for Hillary because Bill had been a force for mass incarceration, that Hillary had once used the term super predators to refer to young blacks. This was a theme uh, of of, uh, Michelle Alexander. This was a theme of uh, Killer Mike amplifying what some black radicals were already saying. Seems to me that is a place where the Russian bots and trolls might have helped reduce black turnout, which might have helped make Trump president.
3: Well, you know, it's it's speculative. I mean, it isn't a shock that black turnout declined in the election following a the, the first elected black president of the united states uh, twice before um, it isn't a shock that black turnout and for that matter um, you know turnout among the young and and other you know regular democratic leaning voters um, dropped in 2016 and and there were yes a lot of black American voters who were less than thrilled with Hillary Clinton's record with Bill Clinton's record on a number of issues uh, on top of that. So the enthusiasm level was down and there were critical um, voices in the African-American community about the Clintons. I don't know how you make a conclusion. I don't think you can, that the Russians, you know, had more than a marginal impact on that. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. Really, it's a, it's something we'll never know.
2: Okay, 13 Russians have been in, indicted. This is Mueller laying a foundation. What do you think might be next?
3: One thing I think we could think about is a parallel indictment of individual Russians, not for the social media activity, but for the, the hacking several newspapers over the past year, the New York times and the wall street journal have both reported that the FBI has identified specific individual Russians who were involved in the hacking of the DNC and John Podesta's email accounts in 2016, just as Mueller just indicted individual Russians over the social media issue. Um, really interestingly, uh, in, uh, I guess a couple of weeks ago now, the, a Dutch newspaper, De Volkskrant, uh, revealed that the Dutch intelligence service, starting in 2014 and continuing for as much as two and a half years, had tapped into, broken into, the hacking team called Cozy Bear, that was one of the groups that Uh, was responsible for the hacking of the Democratic National Committee. And the Dutch intelligence service watched this happen in real time, including uh, breaking into their security cameras and watching individual Russians come in and out of the room Wow! and then uh, identifying who those Russians were. Um, Now, for all we know, the, the CIA or the NSA or someone else had a similar operation underway and had other ways of identifying who the Russians were involved in this. But it seems clear now that because the Dutch did share this uh, with the United States, that the Mueller people know the names and the faces of specific Russians who hacked the DNC and how they did it. So presumably um, he could indict Cozy Bear and Fancy Bear in the same way that he indicted the Internet Research Agency and its various um, worker bees um, who who were involved in, you know, planting these social media postings. Um, so that could be something that comes, you know, sooner rather than later. But there are many, many other um, questions, you know, including collusion-related questions and obstruction of justice-related things that uh Mueller will focus on as well.
2: One last thing about Trump himself, he was unhinged more than usual this past weekend after the news of the indictments came out, even though, as we've said many times, the indictments were only of Russians and not of anybody in his campaign or his family. Do you have any idea why he was going so wild about this over the weekend? The underlying
3: reason is that Mueller is getting very close to uh, the White House. He's he's got the president cornered or boxed in, I believe. And I think that uh, Trump and his family, his sons and son-in-law and his daughter are beginning to panic about this as well they should. And the options he has to unbox himself, firing Mueller, issuing pardons, playing around with who's who in the justice department. I mean, these are things that if he does them will probably make his situation politically worse, could lead to impeachment charges right away, could probably break the Republican Party apart, and really throw them into the, the depths of a crisis facing the election in November for for the House and Senate.
2: Bob Dreyfus covers Russiagate for the nation. Read his new piece, all about cozy bear and fancy bear at thenation.com. Thank you, Bob. Thanks very much, Tom. Finally, a word about this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. Of course, that's our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks about the National Football League. The business of sports and whether or not the NFL is blackballing Colin Kaepernick. That's this week on the Edge of Sports Podcast where sports and politics collide. Tune in every Tuesday at thenation.com slash Edge of Sports. <laughs> Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our show is recorded and edited by Lyra Smith. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is our engagement editor. Katrina Vanden is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts. At iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and now at Spotify Podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.